Here, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, gracious Father in heaven, um, you're kind to us to reveal yourself to us. You say that as Abraham was, we too are your friends because you reveal yourself to us. You teach us. You tell us about yourself. And so we come now to the scripture to listen, to hear, to learn of you. So please make your ways known to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, please, and chapter 5. I want to read, I think, just verses 18 through 21. Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, please. <clears throat> and this is the word of the Lord. All this is from God, that through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we've been here in this passage camping out, lingering a bit. Uh, and so just one more time, I want to linger here in a way that wasn't uh, uh, apparent to me, at least last Sunday when I was preaching, but came apparent to me as I began to think about this week. And so, so we'll lay this out. But, but the theme here, as we know, is reconciliation with God. God reconciling sinners to himself. We know that because just in the few verses that I read... Uh, the word reconciled or reconciled or reconciling, uh, all those words are used five times. And that's fairly redundant unless you want to make a point uh, with that. So we clearly, this theme is, is, is reconciliation. We know this word reconciliation as it lays out for us our relationship with God comes from a, a social relational sphere. We talked about the fact that the big word propitiation comes from a, the temple and sacrifice that describes our relationship with God and what God has done through us, for us through Jesus. So propitiation, big word, comes from the sphere of the temple or sacrifice that redemption and the big word comes uh, from the slave market or from commerce. We understand it in that, from that sphere uh, of life. And then justification comes from the law courts, speaks to us of our this legal relationship that we have with God and, and how Jesus uh, uh, paid for our sins and uh, so that we can be pardoned, declared not guilty in Christ by the Father, by God. And so, so all those words, this word reconciliation tells us that something very relational has happened. We talk about two parties being reconciled. We realize they were estranged. They were separated, uh, a certain measure of hostility one to the other. They were at odds. And to be reconciled means that something takes place so that you can come together. We know the necessity of this. We talked about this. The necessity for this reconciliation with God is the basis of our sin, of course, our rebellion against him. We've broken his laws. We've not loved him, as we made confession earlier. We've not loved him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. 
which means we haven't glorified him, we haven't reflected him, we haven't been the people he created us to be. We've gone our own way as opposed to his way. All of that, don't have time to give a whole sermon on sin this morning. But but you get it, you understand that it's our sin that separates us. On the one hand, it separates us from God and so because our sin means that in us that we want to go our own way rather than his. And so we, in that sense, separate ourselves from him. We don't trust him. We don't love him. We don't follow him. We don't obey him. We go our way instead of his. Now, from God's perspective, and this was the important one, this is the one we often don't think of, from God's perspective, there is a separation as well, and it's because of our sin, and this sin then results in God's posture towards us, which is wrath. Now, when we speak about the separation from us to God, remember, that is unjust. There's nothing in God. And about him that should make us not love him. To really know him is to really love him. He's perfectly lovable. Everything about him is good. So when we turn from him, that isn't fair, if we could put it that way, to God. That's unjust. We have no reason to turn from him. But when he turns from us, when the separation happens from his perspective, the enmity, we could say the hostility, Um, the estrangement from him, this wrath, that is just. We deserve it. God's wrath is not some sort of knee-jerk emotional reaction that he's ticked off at us, but it's his reasonable, righteous response to our sin. And so the separation then that, that, that is dealt with by God through the cross is that separation, first and foremost, God's From us. And so he deals with his wrath in Jesus, right? And so, but but that's the need of it. We we know we need it. We need someone to do this. And and we know the how of it and the why of it. The why of it is because he loves. Um, It's it's this amazing notion. Uh, In fact, is is, uh, our dear friend, uh, John Calvin, uh, struggled with this notion of, 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 of God's wrath and yet his love for us. All he could say is he loved us while he hated us. He couldn't figure out another way to really say that. He stole it from St. Augustine. But, but still, that's, uh, uh, that's this, this sense of it, really, right? That, 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 that it's puzzling to us. It's startling to us. It's paradoxical to us. But, but, but it's just true. He, he, his wrath was towards us. But yet at the same time, there was a love that he had for sinners like us. Okay, so that's the, 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 the why of it. It showed his justice for sure. And he can present us blameless before him. The why of it. So we know the need, the why. The how of it, of course, is through the cross of, of Jesus. And again, that's why I just want to linger one last time, at least at the moment. We'll always come back to this verse. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God, I mean, that is just, uh, what do you say? I mean, when we, when we went to the Day of Atonement, we, we saw uh, these two goats, and one was killed, and his blood sprinkled on the seat of propitiation, really better, the seat of mercy, to satisfy the wrath of God. It's, it was a picture. Poor goat was innocent, 
poor goat hadn't done anything wrong to die. It was just a goat after all. Oh, your goat lover, sorry, but it was just a goat. Uh, but, but still, uh, it went and, and the blood was sprinkled on the, on the mercy seat. And the people would say, oh yes, I'm supposed to die, but, but this innocent one dies in my place. But then this beautiful picture, and that's the scapegoats, the second goat, where the priest, as I mentioned during our time of confession, leans really on the head of this thing and confesses the sins of the people. I don't know how long that took. I mean, mine could take a long time just if he was personal about it. So I don't know how long it took for him to do that. But the image was these sins and the guilt of these sins are being imputed, remember, credited to, counted on, laid upon, however you want to put it, on this goat. And then to let us see what happened on the cross that we can't really see is that our sins were taken away. Never to be seen in that context again. As far as the east is from the west, to the bottom of the sea, as the scripture tells us, to be remembered by God no more. And so, so, so he, he takes, God does, our Sin and its guilt, and he imputes it to Jesus, gives it to Jesus, the innocent one. He didn't deserve to die. We did, but he died on, a, on him so that his justice would be done and he could be the just. He could be just, as Romans 3 says, he could be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Right? And then we know that our sins, the guilt of our sins are gone so that we're, there's no case against us in glory anymore. All that's been taken care of. And thus, in that sense, legally, we've been reconciled to God, pardoned. It's an amazing thing. And then he gives to us the righteousness of Christ. And so we call that, it's been called throughout the history of theology, the great exchange. We give him the guilt of our sin. He gives us his righteousness. And we stand, again, amazingly so, startled by the fact that God counts us, considers us to be righteous in his, in his sight. Say, Luther into my reformers today. Luther called this an alien righteousness. It comes from without us. And we know that and we get that and we understand that, that we're clothed really in the righteousness of Christ. And, and what a better thing. What, what better to, to be clothed in, in the covered with the righteousness of Jesus so that when the Father looks upon us, he sees righteousness. And we're right with him and, and all is well. With, with him concerning us. Now we know the extent of this, so we know, we know the need of it, we know the why of it, we know the how of it, and we also know the extent of it. The extent is uh, God was reconciling through Christ the whole world to himself, not just you and me, not just people like us, not just Jews, not just men, not just people of Paul's day, but people in all times and all places. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone, every human being is reconciled to God because the message goes out, be reconciled to God, so it must be received. Now, the good news is that God is at work to enable people, us, like us, to receive it. 
by the work of his spirit, using his word to bring us new life so that that new life can express itself in repentance and faith. So you know one has been reconciled to God when they turn, we turn from our sins. So I'm no longer going to go my own way. That leads to destruction. But now to believe in, to trust in, the Lord Jesus took my sin, gave me his righteousness. I stand forgiven and clothed in his righteousness, not of myself. This is all from, from God. Okay, that's a review over the last 25 years, quite frankly. But uh, I don't know why it's taken me so long to get finished with that. But, uh, and, but from the last few weeks, okay, we've gone through all of that. But, so what that means is then that we've been reconciled to God. There's no case against us because of the work of his spirit. We receive that work and we love him. And, and so we've been joined back, if you will, together, reconciled with him. The question this morning is, what's that mean? What's that really look like? How do we really understand this reconciliation with God? Well, I think the scripture gives us at least three pictures of that, three descriptions of that. So this morning, I just want to lay those out for you. I hope at the end of this morning, you'll be able to say, he should have preached three sermons. I just, I might, anyway. But but you're probably, I hope at the end you go, you know, each one of those deserves its own book. And, and it really does. But but uh, I, I just want to lay them out today for you. I'm not going to go back to them necessarily. At least in the next few weeks, we'll go back through them over the next how many years we have together. But but but, but just, just, I want you to have these pictures in your mind because you see these things all the time in the lives in which we live. And, and I hope that when you do, when you see these pictures, that you'll think about you having been reconciled to God. And that will cause you to spend the rest of your day wondering about that. Three pictures. First one is marriage. The second one is family. The third one is friendship, all right? Marriage, see it all the time, not as often as we should, but we see it all the time. Uh, we see family relationships, the, the, the technical theological word for this is adoption. But we see parents and children, fathers and children particularly. That's what the picture is there in this context of family. And then we see friendship, I trust, in lives as well. Each one of those speaks something to us about what this reconciliation means. First one, marriage, very quickly. You know, if you're a reader of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you'll find first and foremost that ancient Israel uh, was, had a close relationship with God, so much so that God described his relationship with ancient Israel like this. He said, I am your husband. It was that kind of a relationship. And we see that played out because this covenant relationship that God had with ancient Israel, this covenant relationship that he had, he would speak of it as their, their marriage, that, that when Israel was unfaithful 
to this relationship, then he would proceed with divorce. So we, we see that language uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. And, and you see the picture of it. You, many of you know the prophet Hosea. If you haven't read Hosea recently, uh, read it. Um, it's just, it's, it's just a um, breathtaking narrative of this prophet who enacts, enacts this prophecy uh, wherein he's married to a woman who is unfaithful, a prostitute, who continues to, to, to go to other men and be unfaithful. In the picture there is Israel, and yet Hosea buys her back. And, and so we see this sense of, of God redeeming and, and, and restoring and all of that. So, so you get the picture. It was, it was there in ancient Israel. And in ancient Israel, you know, the people of God were, were unfaithful to God. And so when, when Jesus comes... It isn't surprising to us that he uses this metaphor about himself as the bridegroom. As he tells parables, as he, as he speaks about God and what God is doing. And, and, and we know that the church is pictured in the scripture of the New Testament as the, the bride of Christ. If you read the book of Revelation at the end, chapters 19, 21, we, we see this, uh, the bride coming from heaven, you will. If you will, we, we hear reports of this married supper of the Lamb. And so, so you see that relationship there of, of, of marriage. In fact, when, when the Apostle Paul is describing uh, our relationship with God, he uses this, this marriage description in Ephesians in chapter 5. For instance, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, <clears throat> excuse me, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and uh, without, uh, she might be holy and without blemish. <clears throat> in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. See, by that point, I think he's just giving me a discourse about marriage, but he's not. He said, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It sounds like we're talking about marriage, but we're not. We are, but we're not. We're talking about the relationship that we have to God through Jesus. This reconciliation that took place, the unfaithful spouse now being reconciled. And the image here, the description here, the picture is, 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 is marriage. That's why I just parenthetically, if I could say, the institution of marriage, as we understand it, marriage is crucial to us. If we get marriage wrong, then we'll confuse ourselves and our children and the world about what our relationship with God is to be like. Marriage is a description, and not just a description, it was grounded and founded in Genesis before the fall, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. Before anybody sinned, it was to be true of human beings. And it was to be true of human beings because it rightly reflected, rightly imaged God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their 
their relationship together and how we're to relate. And this was a special thing for human beings to, 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 to understand who God is and to understand our relationship with him. And so it's this kind of description, if you will, that, that we're to be married and we're to see in marriage our relationship with God, what it means to be reconciled, joined together with him. Because marriage is a joining together of two. And astoundingly, this reconciliation that takes place between us and God joins us together with him. There's a bond, a union. And we don't become God and God doesn't become us. It's like a man doesn't become a woman and a woman doesn't become a man. A husband doesn't become the wife. The wife doesn't become the husband. But still yet, there is this union between the two of them that takes us books to even try to describe what that's like. And, and we have this union with God. And he is our husband, loves us in such a way like husbands are to love their wives, but loves us in such a way that he gives himself for us so that we might live, so that we might, as the church, flourish. And, and he, he provides for us nourishment and cherishing in such a way that it sanctifies us. See, flourishing spiritually means that we're being sanctified. Flourishing spiritually means that we're growing in grace. Flourishing spiritually means that we're growing in holiness. Well, in this relationship, that's what Jesus is doing as, if you can put it this way, husband. That is... He's cleansed us, gave himself to sanctify us, make us holy, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that we'd be presented to his Father in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, we'd be holy and blemish. And here's this phenomenal expression, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his own body. So he loves us in such a way that he does for us that which he would do for himself to bless us, right? To grow us up, to make us holy so that his father is pleased with us. It's this work. And so we read, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he lives to intercede for us, to defend us always, to think of us always as a husband is to do for his wife. And he is utterly and completely faithful to his vows. Now, I know what you're thinking if you're a wife. My husband's not like that. Well, if you're a husband, I'm not like that. Well, we'll deal with that sometime. But God is like that. He's completely faithful to his vows. When he says, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. He means that he will never leave you nor forsake you ever. Now we know in marriage, it doesn't always work out that way. We get that. And when it doesn't work out that way, we say it should have worked out that way. Because we know what it's supposed to be like. And it could have been our own sin. And we admit that and we confess that. And we say, I'm I'm the fault here. I get it. Forgive me because it... I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have lived that way. I should have been faithful. Because we know what marriage is supposed to be. And, and, and he says, this is the picture that I want you to have in your mind of, of this reconciliation, this joining back with God, this relationship that you have. It, it, it's like marriage and, and, and Jesus, your husband, you the bride. I must confess as a man, that's sometimes hard for me to, to really get into. But you're to submit to him because he's trustworthy and he's faithful and he never will leave you nor will he forsake you. He'll never take another. He says to the church, you're mine. I'll never love another like I love you. You've been reconciled. You're secure in that kind of love. Secondly, he says that we're reconciled in this family way, like a father to children, this sense of having been adopted. Do you remember in ancient Israel, it was considered by God to be his firstborn, as he put it, his son. In fact, we have that Advent's coming. When I say Advent, I always point over there because that's where the candles will be. So to me, Advent's over there. But uh, uh, Advent is, is coming. And so there's this wonderful expression in the scripture uh, when, when Jesus and Mary and Joseph go into Egypt, you remember, uh, to, to flee so that they don't get killed and they don't go back the way they came, they go to Egypt. And, and, and the, the expression is uh, that that happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled that said, out of Egypt, I called my son. And what are we thinking about? We're thinking, well, Jesus is the true Israel of God, the true firstborn, the true son of God. And he did call Israel out of Egypt during the days of Moses. And so that's the picture of it, that that Israel is God's firstborn. But yet, of course, the firstborn son, the son fled the father, just like the prodigal fled the father in the story that Jesus told. And so so, so now there's reconciliation, there's restoration. uh, And the New Testament refers to that in the sense of, of, of adoption, so that there would be heirs of God. We, we see that expression in Romans, for instance, and, uh, and chapter 8 <clears throat> and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children and heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also uh, be glorified with him. So he says in this reconciliation, this, this sphere of relationship, what happens is that now we relate to God as father and we, his children, his heirs, if you will, that all that belongs to him belongs to us as his children. That's why the word son is used and not daughter, not to be offensive but in biblical language, it's the sons 
who typically inherited. So that's why we retain that language in our translations. Certainly it includes men and women who are believers, but, but that's the sense of sonship. That's why that language is used. Um, and so uh, we see even there's an intimacy, this word Abba, Father, uh, this sense of, of intimacy, a special name, a special way to refer to him uh, as, as, as this intimate relationship. And you might say, well, isn't everybody a child of God? Come on, that's what they hear on the news all the time. Everybody says we're all children of God. And, and there's a general sense in which that's true. And Paul was in Athens speaking um, there in Acts chapter 17. Uh, he refers to that we're sort of all the offspring of God. And that's a reference to creation. But this sense of father, no, no, the truth is that only those who are brothers and sisters of Jesus, and only those who are brothers and sisters of Jesus are those who believe and trust in him. Only those are real children of God. Remember what Jesus said to a group of Pharisees one day, John chapter 8. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. More pointedly, he went on a couple of lines later to say, uh, your father is the devil. And you know how the Apostle John puts it in John and uh, chapter 1, verse 10, puts it like this. He says, um, he, that is, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. See, when we believe in him, then we're adopted by him, reconciled to our father. That's why the picture that Jesus gives us in that great story of the prodigal son is so helpful here. Um, you, You see the rebellion of the son from the father. And then you see the son... Coming to his senses. Call that repentance. And you see him going back to his father. And he's reconciled. He's restored as a son. He's covered up. So he looks like one of the family. He's given the ring. So that he can operate as one of the family. And he's restored as an heir of the father. And they will feast together. There's, there's that sense of it, that sense of, of reconciliation, of restoration, of, of relationship. And that's here. And so how do we get this? How do we understand this? How do we know this God who is our Father? Well, well first, we come to him and we say, Abba, Father, we, 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 we make our requests known to him. We communicate with him. We, we pray. I mean, that's, that's really it. We, we, we're able to go to him and, and pray to him. And that's why when Jesus... And gave this prayer for us as a model. He said, start like this, our Father. Our Father. And then he says, but make sure you distinguish him from other fathers who aren't in heaven. Now, that's a great expression, in heaven. We're reconciled to our Father who is in heaven. And it's such a great expression because you see, yes, it does kind of distinguish him from our own earthly fathers. 
Because no earthly father, just like no earthly husband, can perfectly model or image God as our father. Remember when Jesus was with a group of people uh, and he was describing to them really about his father and about praying, he said, uh, he said, uh, you, though you are evil, you fathers, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, don't you think there were probably some good dads out there that day? I mean, you know, the, some kids would go, you're not a bad dad. You're not evil. Or even some moms might say, you're not so bad, you know, as a dad. Uh, uh, but we get the point compared to God, who is our father, we're all evil. So, so I, I know it's very easy emotionally and otherwise. To be damaged in such a way by your own fathers that it's difficult to relate to God as father. But I could urge you, please, to see the contrast, to set your earthly dad aside. And I know emotionally that's difficult and all that, just like it's difficult to set aside some earthly husbands. And it might even be you as a dad that struggles with this concept. But see, God is who he is. He's, the, he's good. And you see, as father, you know, I suppose if you could pick your dad, you'd want somebody to be smart, wealthy, powerful. Well, that's the point that he's in heaven. He has it all. He sees everything. He's omniscient. He's all wise. He's not deterred or thwarted by anything going on in the earth. None of that, none of that affects him in the sense that it keeps him from doing what he wants to do because he's in heaven. He's the sovereign one over all, over all things. See, everything belongs to him. So he is our father, that father who is king, who is Lord, who has everything, who knows everything, who is everywhere. I mean, that's the father to have our father who is in heaven. And he's holy. Hallowed be your name. He's holy. That means he's, he's perfect. He's good. A great African expression. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the declaration, if you will, from our, our lips. And he's, he's good. He gives good gifts to his children. What's the hymn we sing? Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? And sometimes I sing that and I say, I don't think I've seen it. And that's when I remember, I'm singing in faith. I will see it. The day will come when I will see that everything that my heart longed for was ordained by the Father. Yes, because he gives good gifts to his children. He gives good gifts to his children. And I realize then as his child, because he's my father, that I, I, I yield to him. It's his kingdom. It's his will that is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I realize, too, that he provides for me my daily bread, my material needs. I realize, too, he's in the business of sanctifying me because he brings me to confession of my sin. To come to confession of my sin, I realize that I've sinned against him, that I haven't done what I ought to do, that I've, I've, I've offended him, I've sinned him. And so he says, well, you know, uh, forgive us this our debts, if you will. Forgive our debts. Forgive my sins. Sanctify me, work in me. As my father, he disciplines me. I should expect that. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that the hardships that come your way, you're to receive them as discipline, not punishment, because he's your father. 
Not wrath, because that's been taken care of, but discipline to train you, to help you, so that you'll know holiness, so that one day will come and you'll reap a reward of harvest of righteousness and peace. So that's what's going on in the context, because he's our father. So when these difficult things, when hardships, when horrible things even, we could say, come into our lives, we look at them in such a way and we see that's God at work, sanctifying me. And then he makes us like him because he says, we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That we're supposed to be like you, God. We're supposed to be merciful and kind and compassionate and forgiving. And so he's always at work in us. He protects us, lead us not into temptation. That's the kind of father he is. But deliver us rather from evil. See, that's the father. We've been reconciled to him. So we're secure in that. Finally, this very quickly, uh, there's a friendship. And this is one of those words that, that's difficult because it isn't a friendship like a peer friendship. Because this is a friendship with God and he with us. And that he would use that language about us is, is, is almost more than we can take. And you remember he used it of Abraham. He said, Abraham is my friend. That was how Abraham was known. And the question is, well, why Abraham? Why was Abraham known as his friend? Well, we know that Abraham believed God and God counted that as righteousness. But we know, too, that Abraham feared God. You remember on that experience where Abraham was called by God to take Isaac, his son, his only son, up to the mountain and kill him? As we've said, Isaac was the safest guy on the planet that day uh, because if Abraham uh, obeyed, God would stay his hand. If he disobeyed, Abraham, uh, Isaac would be fine. So, so I, he probably got counseling later on in life, I suspect. But, 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 but he was fine. He wasn't going to die that day, so it wasn't going to happen. But, but as a test to Abraham and as an image of what God would do with his own son, and actually do with his own son, uh, and the provision that God would make, said that he feared God. He obeyed him. Psalm 25, verse 14 this, I shouldn't confess this because it doesn't mean anything, but this is the verse that runs my life. <clears throat> Psalm 25, verse 14. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship See, Abraham feared the Lord and he became a friend of God. And and you remember, even before this incident, another incident took place in the life of Abraham. That God was going to destroy Sodom. And God began to contemplate, Genesis 18, God began to contemplate, should I tell Abraham about this? Should I tell him that this is what I'm going to do? Well, he eventually tells him, and that's when Abraham intercedes for that city. You might remember that great exchange between God and Abraham. Because you see, for those who fear him, there's friendship. Now that little word friendship that I have in the ESV is translated in some other versions. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. Because there's this relationship between friendship and secret counsel. 
Because something true of real friendship is that real friends tell each other things. They confide in each other. If you're a real friend, you have a real friend. Your friend knows things that other people don't know about you. And and that's when you think about, when you make the short list, probably for most of us, the short list of people that we would really call friends. We have lots of acquaintances and there's this range, I suppose, from strangers, people we wave to in the neighborhood, to acquaintances, to deeper acquaintances, the people who know us pretty well, we know them pretty well, and then our friends. You know who they are. They're the ones you call when you can't call anybody else. Friends. And, and why are they friends? Well, because you can tell them stuff. They know your heart. And God says to us, it's more than I can even say, God says to us, you're my friends. And I prove that by revealing myself to you, giving you my word and writing it on your heart. You remember how Jesus put it, John chapter 15. And verse 15 verse 14. He says, You are my friends. If you do what I command, command, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, if that doesn't put goosebumps in you, then you're not goosebumpable. All right? I mean, that's, that's, Profound that the God of the universe calls us his friends because we fear him and he tells us his heart, his covenant, his promises, his vows. And he lays that out and he gives that, you see, To us, so that we can really know him. And that's it, you see, that's the very presence of God. Finally, this, Romans chapter 1, just to kind of cap all, um, chapter 5, to cap all of this off, please. Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is reconciliation, no hostility. We have now peace with him. Uh, through him, we also have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, that is this Reconciliation. It's like marriage, adoption, friendship. We have access into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that the sufferings produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, has been poured out to us as a husband loves his wife, as a father loves his child, as a friend loves his friend. And he says, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that your hope is in the glory that is to come. A day will come 
when you'll see it and everything will be right and you'll say yes. And I'll guarantee you this too. I'll guarantee you this, that during this life, as you fear me and follow me, as I'm your husband, as I'm your father, as I'm your friend, in this life, you'll never be put to shame. You'll never regret. You'll never be put to shame. You never think that believing in me was in vain. No matter what else happens, you'll always come around to see that trusting in me is exactly the best thing for you. I won't put you to shame. Because what you'll see working in you is the glory of Christ. You'll see it. You'll see it. Because you'll always have my presence. You know the great benediction. The great benediction we get from the the book of Numbers. Really. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's not an inner peace. That I've come with all this. That's part and parcel of the whole deal. But peace with him. Peace with him. So that you'll always know that his face is shining upon you. Right? That's a good thing, by the way. That means he looks upon you favorably. His face is always shining upon you. He delights in you as a father delights in his children. His face is always, his countenance is always lifted up upon you, which means he's always with you. So you're as secure as a wife will be with the perfect husband. You're as secure as a child will be with the perfect father. You're as secure as one who is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. No surprise that Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything. Why? Because your father cares for you. Don't be anxious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, we believe this. That the blitz of all of this would affect us in the way of just sinking deep within you. I pray that we know that, that we can show that to others, that they would say, what's your hope? And we could tell them of reconciliation that comes by the work of Christ. May we trust, may we fear you to know you. Pray that those in our congregation are suffering in various ways. Please, God, make known to them your covenants. Make known to them your vows to them. Make known to them your promises to them. Make known to them that you are faithful to all that you promise. Make known to them that they're joined together with you. Make known to them that they are your heirs. Make known to them that you're their friend. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name.